Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, September 9th, 2022. I'm John Bonhorts, the editor of Commentary Magazine, once again telling you something that you may not be able to hear, which is why I'm telling you, which is that once again, second time this week, we had a problem with iTunes uploading our podcast to its um, podcast feed and listeners who get it through Apple aren't getting it or didn't get yesterday's just as it hadn't gotten a podcast a couple days earlier. And of course, we're very upset about this. We don't really know how to fix it. Uh, Apple is a very unresponsive system, as is our server. We're going to take some steps to mitigate this and change things up a bit. Um, If So uh, if you hear of anybody who needs help, tell them to listen to it through our website, that's the best we can do for now. For all I know, this will be loaded today, and therefore you will then maybe complain to me that you couldn't get yesterday's, and there's nothing I can do about it except you can go to the website and find it there, and that's what you should do, and you should subscribe to the magazine when you do that because that's how we keep going. And uh, with me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media Commentary Columnist and American Enterprise Institute Fellow Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor and author of Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Obviously, the big news is the uh, death of the longest reigning uh, monarch in British history. And by some measures, possibly the longest reigning monarch, aside from um, Timon or something like that, of, of in, in all of history, uh, <coughs> uh, Elizabeth II. Um, 70 years on the throne um and uh the tribute the way the 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 mass coverage the flooding the zone coverage of this kind of event um you know uh, threatens to make everything that anybody says uh completely banal and repetitive and uh pointless uh in the on the one hand, the hagiography, and then, of course, the twist toward anti-hagiography or character assassination, all of that stuff that all happened because of social media's speed now in roughly seven seconds following her, the word of her of her passing with um, some genuinely slanderous and monstrous tweets and things from various woke academics. Um, uh, one of my favorites or least favorite being Maya Jasanoff of Harvard, somebody who had uh, in a previous uh, in a previous moment, an anti-colonialist scholar, author of a really genuinely terrible book about Joseph Conrad, who um, who said at some point in her career that the assassination of Lord Mountbatten, uh, who was the uncle of uh, Prince Prince Charles, um, uh, in 1979, an event in India that actually killed two teenagers, uh, was karmic justice. Um, and so uh, she's really a gem. And she said that, you know, we can mourn Elizabeth, but of course she was the she was the leader of a monstrous colonial regime when in fact she was, of course, the leader of a of a of a uh, of an empire that uh, was dismantled basically systematically during her during her tenure as monarch. Um, so to try to play uh, anti-colonialist games with her is um is a bizarre fool's errand and just an example of uh, the fundamentalist uh, leftism that is the prevailing religion in places like 
Harvard, uh, where you just have to start citing uh, the demons of the past. And if there's anything is the past that is the British colonial past, um, Elizabeth wasn't even queen when Britain's major colony, which was India, was, of course, uh, decolonized and became a became its own country in 1948. And then, of course, there was Palestine, which uh, became Israel uh, in 1947 or 1948, depending on when you want to count it. Uh, and then everything else. So everything that is now remains in the Commonwealth, remains in the Commonwealth basically by choice. Australia, Canada, uh, you know, whatever. And and uh, so there's that. There's a lot of that. And uh, maybe that's where we should sort of like draw our focus. Like what 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 it, what is this impulse? I've had it myself over the course of my life. When I was a kid and I was young, I was writing for newspapers. I remember um, uh, one of my specialties, uh, and I'm talking about my early 20s. So I was very obnoxious and very unaware of the pain of death in many ways. You know, I would like write obits of celebrities who had died or sort of like you know commemorations of their death that were really kind of ugly like a piece about Orson I remember I wrote a piece about Orson Welles when he died in the early 80s in which I was like eh you know he should have died when he was 27 because then he would have died you know as the greatest filmmaker ever lived rather than the greatest disappointment as a filmmaker who ever lived or something like that it's a horrible thing to say horrible way to talk the minute that somebody has you know passed who had a very complicated and uh life and had a legacy that was worth writing about since i was writing about it so there's that impulse everybody has it it's sort of the impulse to you know puncture balloons and uh you know and not go along with the prevailing wisdom and not be sentimental and not be drippy and you know not be hey geographic but um some of the stuff that was coming out yesterday was really just horrifying not to uh impugn your youthful instincts uh when you're writing obits but yeah there's it's something of a of a child's view of sophistication to um slander the dead upon their death based on the circumstances of their life that happen to uh you know really exercise you or the people around you i'm i'm going to briefly digress from the queen we can re return to it to this what i perceived to be a completely psychotic piece in Politico today um, titled, Is Election Denial a Big Deal? Judging by some obits, not really. That, so the uh, intraday lead in this piece that sort of does go into the, the struggles that obit writers have to go through in order to really capture the life that they're attempting to, they're not eulogizing here. They're just trying to you know sum up a life in as dispassionate a way as possible. And they talk about the death of Congresswoman Jackie Walorski, who died along with two of her staffers in a really horrible traffic accident uh, a couple of months ago. And it describes how morally compromising it is that her obits did not focus, not not mention, not bury, not ignore, not focus on her vote to against certifying the election results in 2020. Quote, so far, this is one of many, this is the trend piece. So far, they reveal a Washington culture deeply uncertain about election denial and its legacy. No one in Washington is uncertain about election denial and its legacy. Precisely no one. It's one of many compromising votes that you have to take that actually makes, you know, that 
uh, perhaps undermines your moral authority in Washington as one of many hundreds of such votes. It just happens to be that this particular writer's subjective analysis of this precise level of focus on this issue that has consumed this moment um, is not to his satisfaction. Uh, that's insane. It's completely nuts. And it's very much akin to what we're seeing from with the exception of people who live through the troubles, I will say. Anybody trying to rage against the British Empire and prop this woman up as an example of it, as you say, is misplaced. But it's also just a, a demonstration of their own particular, their own sophistication, their own understanding of themselves in the world. And they're burnishing their own credentials with the with the opportunity presented by this woman's death, even at the expense of the sentiments of the people who are in genuine mourning right now. And there are many millions of them. Uh, it's all just kind of gross. I don't well, think okay. this is um, so much an expression of kind of youthful obnoxiousness, John, that you talk about that. Yeah, we I think we all have sort of had some brush with some flirtation with um, this is politics. This is this is the this is the 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 way politics functions now. Um, this this is the, the all representative of a specific strain of political thought that must get out at all costs. Anytime, the sooner, the better, the nastier, the better. Um, and I, it's like, you know, I remember when Margaret Thatcher died a few years ago and they were immediately, you know, everyone was 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 speaking horrendously of her The difference there. Um, I suspect never having known her personally, is that um, she, I think she would have expected that she perhaps not even minded. She was a sort of fighter and an arguer and, a, and a whatever. The, the interesting thing about the queen from from what I can can glean is that um, she was decidedly placid about uh, sort of all opinion and uh, taking positions, let alone um, uh, uh, sticky ones, um, you know, uh, it was a, a much different type of figure. She was, she was so so the 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 rage that we that we see uh, against against her and the, and the ugliness about her death has everything to do with who what who she was as a symbol, what she embodied, what just by virtue of her existing, what that meant. It's it's not the person itself. But that's that's actually that that's important because it, it ties into what I think Noah is correctly critiquing, which is this sense of presentism in all of these obituaries, whether it's about a former congresswoman or about a, a queen. And that's something that obituary writers in, in mainstream media in particular used to be able to set aside briefly to put someone's entire life in context and to say, look, they lived through this. They did that back then. It was like this. And we've abandoned that. And I think Abe's right. There's a political motivation there. But I was really struck. I think some of the anger is because because she was so apolitical. She was staunchly apolitical. She lived through many prime ministers, met many presidents, and she just, she embodied public service to the extent that she never complained about having to show up and do the job. And that woman showed up until literally the day before she died when she swore in her last prime minister, Liz Truss. And I think one of the, one of the things I was expecting to see a little more of, but of course we won't because um, contemporary feminism today is built on a kind of culture of complaint and weirdly adolescent um, navel gazing. She lived through several waves of feminism too. She really, it's kind of, she, her life kind of bookended the 20th century in an interesting way. If you look at her as a, as a, as a female role model and our, our friend and all around wonderful lady, Megan McCain had a great piece in the daily mail sort of talking about her as a, as a role model for women, 
which in a weird way she became because she just did her duty. It was not a job she chose. She was born into it. She really never complained. There were times when the family was under attack by the press or by the people or by, you know, she just kept at it, kept her head down, did her job. Yes, she lived in absolute splendor with servants and whatnot. I get that. But the British royal family has been trying to manage that balance between the extreme wealth and privilege they occupy by dint of their luck of their birth and the service they feel they have to perform for their citizens. And she really did that in a way that I think without complaint, without turning herself into a victim ever, even in a year where like her beloved castle burned down and there was lots of bad press for her family, she just soldiered on. And that's a style, it did actually remind me a little bit of Margaret Thatcher's attitude but as she was apolitical, it angers people that there's really nothing they can hook their political political uh, uh, complaint on, except oh well, she was a figurehead of the empire, so that's it's pretty thin sauce. But I mean, it, you know, it's interesting because um, it's not presentism to use her death as the occasion to condemn uh, colonialism. That it's like almost the opposite of presentism if you think about it, because colonialism is not an issue. In 2022, I mean, you can say trying that a to make colonialism happen, cultural, again, <laughs> right? But a certain kind of the idea that you know that the spread of American culture has a colonial aspect to it, you, uh, though it is not d- governmentally driven. It's driven by you it's know not by other forces. It's, it's an anachronism, right. essentially. Yes. So, but. She presided over, or she didn't preside over, she was the a representative figure in a change in the British understanding of its of uh, of Great Britain. Um, Great Britain was the you know tiny uh center of was was a uh an you know Great Britain was a set of islands, uh a wash in the North Sea that spread its power and influence across the globe in this almost supernatural way for for several centuries. It was the leading power on Earth. It was, uh, you know, created the Industrial Revolution in many ways. It created a modern commerce in many ways. It created shipping. It created... Uh, and it spread ideas even as it was governing faraway lands uh, through simple, through political domination. Spread ideas about uh, how bureaucracies are supposed to serve and and what freedom is and what free speech is and all of that that ended up having an enormous impact in creating precisely the conditions under which the peoples that it was governing could free themselves from the British yoke over time, using Britain's own ideas in some sense against it. But so there, there they were. And in 1940, the Nazis start bombing Great Britain and uh, London and she becomes queen in 1952, having then spent her teenage years in service, not as the leader of the, not making battle plans, not sending people out to the battlefield, but in the motor uh, pool, uh, fixing Jeeps and trucks and tanks and driving around and occasionally making speeches about how uh, her job was to do her duty. And, as 
Great Britain decolonized in the late 40s, primarily. She becomes queen in 1952. She is is not a representative figure of Great Britain, the power. She is a representative figure of Great Britain, the land that saved itself and the world by being self-abnegating and keeping strong and carrying on and showing a stiff upper lip and and uh, and you know like suffering in silence through this devastating uh attack on its very civilization over the course of the of the first 5 years of or first 4 years or whatever of the of the 1940s so her watchword was duty that was not what the monarchy monarchies were she became a kind of servant of her nation, not the leader of her nation, but the servant of her nation, or the representative of the guy of 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 its nation at of the nation at its best, in its best mode as a kind of characteristic figure, that was new. That was that's I, when innovative is not the right word for it. But she spent seventy years. Look at every relative around her, every relative that she had, with the exception of her husband came a cropper maybe her daughter Anne did not come across yeah, i was gonna put in a good word for Anne. okay so Anne, <laughs> her sister margaret scandals her son charles scandals vicious treatment of his first wife dismissive vicious treatment continuing an affair these disgusting not his fault phone gets hacked but you know we we know stuff about his um his wife, his wife at the time was also having wife. affairs. I mean, let's... yeah, she was, she was, but she was 19 years old <laughs> yeah. when he met, you know, she yeah. was twice her age and he didn't love her and he didn't want her and he kind of tricked her. Uh, her son, uh, Andrew, very bad. We don't even know how bad yet. Bad divorce there uh, with Sarah Ferguson. Um, so obviously she could have been a reprobate. She could have been gross, like her whole family is a little gross, or you know, like or couldn't help it. Like they were, they were living in the twenty. They were living in the twentieth century. They were people of the twentieth century, and she somehow, through an iron force of will, remained this kind of placid, smooth, ripple-free, you know, lake in which the sky could be reflected at all times and that was a kind of heroic achievement because there's no way that's the person she was like we don't know really what kind of person she was she was obviously a person of unbelievable self-discipline and where in our time do we have figures of unbelievable self-discipline that we can look up to anywhere our story monologue we're not privy to on a on a semi-regular basis, not hourly basis. Right. But I mean, it's not even that. It's that we're, we we have now come to believe that what is important to understand about great people is their struggle, right? That's what we're supposed to understand. They battle demons. They, you know, people may say them. They have failures. You can only succeed if you've had a lot of failures. You know, tell us the story of how you failed so we can know how you succeeded. 
and all of that. And, and then also, you know, greatness comes from flaws and, you know, tragic heroes. So, you know, there's John F. Kennedy, uh, you know, uh, uh, murdered in a horrible way, but of course he had this, uh, you know, lubricious personal life, but that's part of the glamor and the glory. And we get to Trump. I didn't want to get to Trump, but you know, it's like, she was a rare public figure in our time, maybe the only public figure of our time of whom it could be said that she was an object of our study. She did not involve us in her, yeah, as, as no one say, she did not involve us in her interior life. She did not involve us in her exterior life. She also never confused her duty as a royal with celebrity. And that is a distinction that I think the future generations of royals are going to have have to struggle with, right? She never acted or expected to be treated as a celebrity. She was royalty. It was a distinct difference. And I think right. that and the Diana, blurring, right? Yes, and Diana is Diana is the person who who equate conflated and added Diana following the weird example of of, of Grace Kelly, right? Grace Kelly, who was a Hollywood actress um, and also famous for her. Um, libertinism let's say uh you know has the storybook life where she marries the she marries a prince and then ends up get, getting taken off to his you know european uh duchy but of course that was all fake monaco's a fake country it's not really a country it's a tax dodge and you know she this was the storybook story of all time then diana you know, becomes queen and she essentially becomes princess grace as uh, she doesn't become queen. She marries the, she marries the princess of Wales, yeah. princess of Wales. And then she, bec she becomes the grace Kelly of England. Uh, she doesn't follow her mother-in-law's example. Uh, she doesn't know how to follow her mother-in-law's example. She wasn't raised to follow her mother-in-law's example. And she was very much a figure of her time, right? She was Elton John's friend. She worried about mines. You know, she hung around with celebrities, uh, you know, and, you know, she talked about her struggles with her eating and all of this. And then finally, she's like, I can't stand this marriage. Get me out of it. I don't want to be married to this guy anymore. Um, and that, all of that, obviously unthinkable to princess and then queen Elizabeth, you know, who would never have divorced Philip, even if she couldn't, you did, because she, that wasn't, she had this one thing to do, which is to be the reflected surface of her, of her nation in some fashion, again, at its best, even if it was a mythological best. But I'm just, like I say, I'm just struck by the fact that, um, is there another figure that we can think of? Maybe Mother Teresa. I mean, I don't want to like elevate her to sainthood. And then there's, of course, all that kind of balloon popping, you know, like letting the air out of the balloon of Mother Teresa by people. But I mean, are there people who we admire for their restraint anymore? Well, it's just not a quality that we reward. As we've That's been what I mean. Just about every... All of these, you know, efforts to, you know, stand on her corpse and proselytize about uh, colonialism has nothing to do with colonialism, has nothing to do with Great Britain, has everything to do with individual career advancement or just social advancement or just, you know, cashing in on, uh, you know, the political capital that that sort of thing mm -hmm. you know, provides you. It has everything to do with you, which is part of the problem that we're talking about.
But I mean, so does, by the way, being this representative of restraint and being this reflected mirror is that it is supposed to be about you. It does make you into a Rorschach test. You can see in Elizabeth the qualities that you wish to see. Oh, my God, look at all the trouble that her daughter-in-law is putting her through, right? Or, oh, my God, my son, what my son has put it. Look, can you imagine how awful it must be for her, Andrew, behaving the way that he behaves? Or her sister is embarrassing her so much. Like, no matter who you are, you could find in her you could find in her a pro- simply by de- virtue of the fact that she did not emote. There's also very low stakes to, you know, going after the queen and monarchy and colonialism. These are settled issues. Um, so that's, you know, the, the stakes are low, but we've been talking about institutions for a very long time and how people, are, you know, don't you know care about institutions, use institutions as a platform to advance their own per- personal political interests, what have you. This is, you know, the essential institutionalist the what name a longer lived institution than the british monarchy very few Uh, and there's not you know as as republicans little are republicans which i think all of us are don't have a whole lot of love for hereditary monarchy um but the virtue of an institution based on its longevity alone uh is something that a a conservative a conservative with the the political uh inclination to preserve institutions for good or ill just because they exist that's one i think they defer to generally i mean the interesting question for the next 50 years is will the monarchy survive without her and uh, you know there was a there was a serious sort of ideological push against the monarchy in the 1980s from the radical egalitarian left. And of course, the thing about cons- the way we define conservatism in the United States and in England and in and in Britain, among certainly among the intellectual class, is very, very much different. It is they uh, British conservatives are much more institutionally focused. Uh, we're more liberty focused in the United States. They are more institutionally focused. Some of this understanding that we are suffering because our institutions are collapsing. Um, bring is bringing a Burkean sensibility to American conservatism that is more as Yuval Levin would say Painian it's more we're more like Thomas you know we're more like these to the extent that institutions hamper our ability to express our freedoms the way they are then they are then they're problematic uh but obviously living without them is almost you know creates horrible uh dreadful conditions so uh the institutional support for um you know, many hundreds of years of history is very significant. And you're right. I mean, it's uh, Jonah Goldberg likes to joke that the most conservative line in all of movies is the line that Otter speaks in Animal House, uh, or maybe it's Hoover says in Animal House where he says that, you know, we have a long tradition of existing. why, Why should his fraternity be allowed to continue? And it's because we have a long, we have a long history of existing. And that is... Yeah, I mean, but that 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 cuts to something um, sensible about conservatism. Actually, it's not just it's not just about having a sort of awe of, for things that have existed a long time. It's about it gets to Edmund Burke's point about assuming that they existed for a good reason before you before you decide to tear tear it down. Um, right, and it, that's it, why. It, it, I just want to say the, the the more I think about your question, John, about 
do we admire anyone um, for their sort of forbearance anywhere or, or for their, I forget the exact word you used, but, but for restraint, sort of not, but what was that restraint, right? Restraint, exactly. Think, exactly. Yeah. Um, no, in, in fact, you know, I think part of what sort of hurts uh, about, about her passing, certainly to someone like me, who is, as Noah said, I, 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 I have no animosity um, for, for the Royals, but I'm not, it's not my thing exactly, but but what but what is upsetting, nonetheless, is not only do we not admire people for their restraint anymore, it's that in so many ways, um, she was the sort of last antithesis of so much um, of what is now problematic, and she, in in terms of temperament, she is the opposite of what is prized now. If, if today it's all about activism, you're talking about someone who was deliberately restrained and, and as Christine says, apolitical. Um, and that is that is the last we will see of that. There's also an element of fear, right? I mean, these institutions are assailed. Um, if, they were to, if you were to make of yourself a big figure that demanded a lot of attention, a controversial figure that demanded a lot of attention, the institution that you, is kind of on the back foot, monarchies generally, um, would be imperiled. I'm trying to think of another monarch who's, which is just as, you know, protective and not necessarily, you know, kind of reserved out of a sense of maybe being surrounded, perhaps the Japanese imperial family. I mean, but there's no, a, I don't, uh, Japanese imperial family you never is going seen through it. its own, but it's also going yeah, like one of own... them resigned. Just, you can resign. Yeah, like, from right. yeah, well, yeah, there, but that's horrible, because there's yeah. an existential sense of dread there that is well deserved. Poke well, your head that, above the parapet, you're likely to catch a bullet. That was right. something that I think it was is truly unfortunate to for which all of America owes the British people an apology is that in the later years of her last few years of her life, the Queen had to endure this the hideous shenanigans of one of her her wayward grandson, Prince Harry, and his horrible American wife, who every time she she did something that she shouldn't have, having been told to do things one way, would cry, You're racist. You know, I mean, it was she was sort of the perfect embodiment of like the D-list wannabe, you know, grifter who anytime things didn't go her way, she would pull the race card. And I mean, I, I this woman who upheld this institution for 70 years and, you know, was slogging along and also training. I mean, obviously her, her son will be sort of a transitional figure. He's in the seventies already, but really we're focusing on William, the, the grandson who's, who's, you know, the heir apparent now um, uh, trying to, Think of ways to modernize that monarchy, slimming it down, maybe not relying, you know, not spending so much, obviously, to that, that, that might anger the the British. But um, I do think that you know, having begun early in her reign to have to deal with her her difficult uncle who abdicated the throne for a for a troublesome American woman, she had to end it dealing with another troublesome American woman. So that I'm sorry for, but <laughs> well, you know, I mean, monarchies like uh, one of the things that happened in the 70s and 80s was. Monarchies had a brief reflourishing, uh, in part because, for example, though he has now become an intensely controversial figure, Juan Carlos was restored to the monarchy in Spain in order to help the country transition away from Franco's rule into a constitutional republic. Um, uh, and the idea was there needed to be a head of state uh, who could somehow represent i mean i quite, i don't know the full i can't remember all the details of how this happened but there are a couple of countries in the world in which 
the existence of of a kind of ceremonial head of state in the form of a traditional monarch ended up being a reform ended up being a brilliantly reformist system uh because it allowed there to be continuity with the past while you were making evolutionary change that was empowering to the public that needed some time to adopt adapt to its taking power or something like that now there's really very little one can think of very little that justifies monarchic rule and certainly uh traditional primogenitorial you know inherited monarchic rule which which makes no sense whatsoever except in a really dictatorial system right i mean in which the you know and so that you have you have monarchical rule in north korea i mean that is kind of like where you have a version of monarchical rule you have the you have the family grandfather father son you know uh over over 50 60 years or the assads or something like that and and uh and would have been the husseins had had we not invaded uh iraq um, so there's almost no justification for it anymore. Um, the other, by the way, interesting aspect of this in relation to Elizabeth is that um, she viewed herself as a representative of a faith tradition, not just a governmental tradition. She was the head of the Church of England, and uh, she she went to church every week. She, you know, this was a very important part of her understanding of her job. And I, does Charles have that? <laughs> Will he have that? Does it mean anything to him? Um, it, you know, was that just part of the ceremonial aspect of her life, which was sort of all ceremony? Um, it's interesting to look at this and say, you know, all children have a thing or, you know, girls in particular have a thing, princess and you're in a castle and you're this and you're that. And then, of course, if you think about the life that is lived here, aside from the fact that you have a life of, well, you know, utter comfort, a physical comfort, um, it's pretty horrible, which is what the Japanese royal family and the people who marry into it are discovering. It's it's awful. You, you're, it's like being... Uh, an American, so like being a superstar, a world superstar, only um, for no reason. It's like having the visibility of a superstar, but your day-to-day -day life is actually that of a of a mid-level municipal functionary. Ribbon cuttings, yeah. openings of, of yeah. you know, old old folks' homes or a new train depot. Like that's actually the daily the daily yeah. life of of a of a member of the a working member of the royal family is not actually that glamorous. You know, they have charities and causes that they sit in on and raise money for, and there are a few glamorous events they do every year. But the day-to-day, -day, despite yeah. their great worldwide renown, is actually fairly mundane. And I think that that contrast is yeah. why it's probably not a job for everyone. Yeah. So it's also that thing where, yeah, you think you want to be queen. And again, in the, like the Middle Ages, of course, anybody would have wanted to be or, you know, until the 20s, anybody would have wanted to be, you know, become a princess when you were a scullery maid, because among other things, you would have food all the time. But, you the, know, the, or there would I, be I, people I, to clean up the toilet and you wouldn't have to clean up the toilet. 
now you look at that life and you say, I don't know. So she's so the 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 Windsors are worth or whatever their Hanovers, whatever the hell their name is, are worth you know close to a billion dollars. But what does that even mean? I mean, they own the royal, they own they own the family jewels, but they don't own them. Like, what does it mean? Can they can they sell them? Can they you know can they invest them? I you know it's not. It's a kind of horrible life. Um, except to the extent that it's a life of duty, and if you are infused with pride and 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 grace and stuff like that by your by your taking on the role in this dutiful way, and your self abnegation itself is a is a moral and spiritual reward. She clearly had that, and I don't think Charles will have. And maybe William learned that from her. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think I think you're right. It's a horrible. I was thinking about what a horrible life. <laughs> It is today in, in, when I was reading all these, you know, remembrances and, and just how she always sort of just stuck to the doing the right thing, you know, you know, virtually almost, you know, never slipping. And um, because the 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 desire for superstardom to the extent that it exists anywhere is, I think, a, a, a pathology. Um, you shouldn't want to be exposed 24 hours like that, you know, um, and, but it's only even possible to desire that if, if you're looking at it from the outside, if you've never, if you haven't had it to just be born into that is, is a sort of kind of surreal horror. Um, you don't have the first clue as to what it would mean not to live like that. I mean, you, except to perhaps desire it the way that other people d desire your your superstardom you know go back if you read accounts of royal families or royal households you know in the pre-modern era um they were this kind of combination of the corleone family and the windsors and they were also like military leaders like you know if you uh, the memoirs of the duke de saint simon who was one of the courtiers at the you know at versailles and under louis the 14th one of the things is like every season everybody would get together uh every you know every every royal or whatever highborn person would get together and like make their army out of their peasants and then go off and fight somewhere and then come back when it got cold you know I mean, they did that too. There was all this kind of weird merging. All these jobs were were as one, and now you just have this, as as Christine says, like you're the person who cuts the ribbon, or you have to, or you have to stamp a document or something like that. You know, one of the the one thing that I I had learned in my youth as a as a student of political science uh, that seemed to be the last expression of monarchical power in the Commonwealth. In 1974, 1975, there was a constitutional crisis in Australia, which is part of the Commonwealth. And the prime minister of Australia was removed. The elected prime minister of Australia was removed from his premiership by the governor general of the Commonwealth, Sir John Carr. His name was Gough Whitlam, and he was removed. And no one really entirely understands why or how. The rumors at the time were that Whitlam, who was a very, very, very left-wing guy, uh, was thought to be under the, you know, was 
either being run by communist agents or was himself a con- whatever it doesn't matter and that that it was through the authority of the queen and all the queen only as the head of the commonwealth that he was removed from office this is pretty late like this is you know this is a year after nixon you know was you know resigned it's not like it was the 18th or 19th centuries and then two or three years ago, papers came out that revealed that the queen did not know that she was kept from her and that Carr had done this without her knowledge um, and basically was presented to her as a fait accompli. Once it happened, if it were exposed or she said, you can't do this, I didn't see the papers, then the then then the expo- it would be exposed that the Commonwealth was a fraud and that there was, you know, and that she wasn't actually running it, whatever. So, so the whole thing. So it turned out even there, the one political act that she took under her, under her, under her reign in 70 years, the one play that was taken in her name, that was a really controversial political act. She didn't even do. So it really isn't a monarchy in that sense. It is simply a symbolic placeholder for the you know john of gaunt speech about this sceptered isle and richard ii you know as a kind of the glory that that was england was reflected in her person and not much else really and again like what what will it mean for there to be what will it mean for charles to be king i we don't even know what we do know is that whenever charles opens his mouth he's an idiot I mean, he's been a he has been a sort of blowhard, third-rate thinker, silly person, silly ideas. I mean, not, not so silly. His ideas about architecture aren't so silly, but you know, he says silly things about climate, and he said some mildly anti-Semitic things in the '80s about Israel and the America, you know, the Jewish lobby and stuff like that. And he's an unimpressive person, uh, and so you know. Unlike his mother, he's not an impressive person. Then, of course, there's the stuff you can't unsee. I won't even mention about his relationship with Camilla Parker Bowles. And I won't mention that. But once you saw that, you can't unsee it. This isn't so commentary after dark. <laughs> he's apparently not uh, particularly popular um, among Britons. It, it, why Why would he be? Right. What's he no. got to be? They loved people, you know, people love Diana and they don't they still don't like it's 25 years after her death. They still don't like the way he treated her. I mean, There'll she won that. She won that battle. Abdication talk will begin shortly after coronation, I would imagine. Now, the monarchy isn't like being appointed to a, a Senate seat for a term. It's not easy to let go of, but abdication i don't know if not, the pope can abdicate anybody can it's abdicate. not a, it's happened before although usually with people who don't actually want to be a monarch and charles clearly does but there's quite a bit of affect, uh, affection for william and he's a younger figure and having just had a queen of 70 years i imagine there's a hunger for stability um that charles cannot provide and maybe even more important people seem to like kate which is which is the British people like his wife and they think his children are adorable and they're very well behaved. They are adorable. <laughs> they are adorable and they're very well behaved. And that alone, either that's a good thing. Cause you're like, Oh my God, they're, they must be really good parents. Their kids are so well behaved or it's like, they're showing you they're, 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 they're shaming you with how well behaved their children are. I don't know. Um, so listen, um, I want to talk to you guys about our friend, 
uh, uh, David Bonson. I've been talking to you about his economics course for the last couple of weeks. Uh, and a lot of thousands of you have signed up and David's very excited. But um, let's talk about David's company, the Bonson Group. Because one of the things that David has done over time has been the maybe the leading skeptic in, in, in economic circles about the long-term consequences of inflation. He does not believe we are in an inflationary spiral. He believes we are in, an, in, in a generational deflationary spiral. And with the S&P down 20% and the NASDAQ down 30% and the Fed raising rates and the economy either in or on the verge of recession, his a lot of the cases he is making uh, have been making about uh, deflation are there's all kinds of evidence plot point to suggest that this is how you need to think about the market in the long term. So if you want to hear how the Bonson Group is using dividend growth to protect client capital and how it is doing so and achieving far better results than those buying the fads of the day or blindly indexing away. Uh, others are being victimized by the ESG cult. They're avoiding vital energy investments. It's the Bonson Group's portfolio management that is up on the year 2022, despite the tough times in the markets. You want to hear about it? Go to the Bonson Group, bonson.com. Take a look at their materials. If uh, he's got four billion in assets under management, uh, the Bonson Group is has got uh, the secret sauce that can help you get back and help us get back to in to sane, proper, wise, long term strategic investing that will protect husband and grow your money. So that's the Bonson Group, B H. B-A-H-N-S-A-N.com, the Bonson Group, $4 billion in assets under management uh, by Coastal and uh, fascinating. So, and we thank David and the Bonson Group for sponsoring the commentary podcast. Noah, I did not believe that six months, I think it's six months, maybe it's six and a half months, almost seven months since uh, Russia uh, made its move on Ukraine that we could conceivably be having the conversation we are about to have about the order of battle in the struggle between Ukraine and Russia. But uh, here we are, and um, it's almost science fictional to me that we're going to be talking about what we're going to be talking about, which is, please. Uh, well, it's not science fictional to me. I'm very, uh, I'll ha happily stand by my record of being uh obnoxiously sanguine about uh ukraine's prospects here but there is a uh, a two-front offensive unfolding literally as we speak um for some time we've been talking about the preparation not we've been talking about it has been happening i've been talking about the preparation for an assault on a territory held in the south by uh, russian forces the notably the city of kyrsan which is a large city uh located just above the crimean peninsula was with the first major major metro area taken by Russian forces early in the war. And then there was this um, campaign of uh, degrading uh, uh, the uh, crime capacity in the South and Crimea and elsewhere to uh, to support Kyrgyzstan. And then there was this offensive, which was sort of a creeping offensive going on for the last couple of weeks. And over the course of the last 48, 72 hours, a, um, a second offensive has opened up in the North 
near Kharkiv, which is this big city to the north of borders Russia. Kharkiv has been never fallen to Russian forces, but it was very close. Since been pushed back, pushed back, pushed back. And we've seen this offensive just explode around this region, just uh, uh, Ukrainian forces um, with deliberate speed, but nevertheless, alacrity, uh, have driven a hole through the Russian lines right to the Dnieper. And then they're, according to, even the Ministry of Defense hasn't confirmed this, but Russian military bloggers suggest that they're, they've liberated a bunch of towns around this, big towns, not, not small little you know, hamlets, large, you know, city, small city-sized towns driven to the river and now are moving south uh, with the capacity, if these Russian military bloggers are correct and, you know, they don't get bogged down, which is always a potential, but if this offensive moves with the speed it's been moving, uh, and Russian forces continue to collapse as they've been collapsing. The prospect of surrounding the city of Izium, and Izium um, fell a couple of weeks back, um, and Russian forces were supposed to take a bunch of cities around that area and that kind of stall. But Izium has many Russian battalion groups there. We don't know how many, but many. This is where the locus of the of the Russian advance in the north was in, in April, May. So now we're talking about the prospect of surrounding a whole bunch of Russian forces. And when you surround a whole bunch of forces and you starve them out, there's the capacity for mass surrender. We could be staring down the prospect of something along those lines. Now, this is speculative, very speculative. Again, perhaps a little sanguine, but a lot of people who have misjudged uh, this conflict have uh, erred uh, on the side of uh, Russian victory, even when there's not a lot of evidence to suggest that that was a good assumption. We still see it. We still see people who are ideologically invested in the idea that this is a waste of American taxpayer dollars, that we have no interests in this part of the world, which is bizarre. The idea that the war in Europe is not in American interests is about as ahistorical as you can possibly get. Um, nevertheless, there's a lot of people refusing to see these events on the ground and draw the logical, con rational conclusions from them. Um, I find it difficult to conclude anything other than that Russian forces are on the heel, on the back foot, and uh, Ukraine is making up a lot of territorial gains and has the prospect to deliver a really serious blow to not just Russian objectives in Ukraine, but the stability of the Russian regime. If there was a mass surrender on our hands, it would change the outcome of, of global geopolitics in ways we cannot predict. I think global geopolitics um, has already been thrown on its on its back foot. Um, the Russian military wasn't supposed to be this way. It was supposed to be fearsome, and time was supposed to be its friend. It knows how to dig in. It knows how to inflict long-term uh, pain uh, using strategies that have been in place since the Finland campaign of 1940. Um, time <laughs> not a great analogy if you're talking about Russian victory no but I'm just saying what they knew what they knew how to do what they know how to do over time and Stalingrad whatever is that they know how to dig in and stay for the long haul and what we're seeing here so that so the long haul obviously this is only six months so we're not talking about Stalingrad which was two and a half years but um what we thought was, well, the Ukrainians, when when things were suddenly going well the first couple of weeks, which no one expected either, really, and the tanks were sinking in the mud, the Russian tanks, and they were taking this bizarre 
one front road down to the Capitol, uh, which made it very easy to pick them off and all that. But it was like, okay, well, once they figure out, once they know, once they they screwed up at the beginning, the, the Union screwed up at the beginning of the Civil War in, 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 at Manassas, and they got their sea legs and, you know, they're stronger, they're richer, they have more force, they have more people, they have more ability and all of that, and they'll they'll learn. And apparently, almost the reverse has happened. That that is that the Ukrainian army, army, Ukrainian military, which um, which as Todd Lindbergh details in a really great piece for us in our uh, it, again, Abe, help me, July, August, or September issue. I can't even remember now. I think that's July, August. I think it was July, August. Anyway, that 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 the Ukrainian military is actually extremely well trained and was, you know, and has been we've spent years working with them uh, since 2014, uh, upgrading their abilities and their tactical strengths and all of that. But they're learning as they go and they're learning and the Russians seem to be forgetting as they go or falling to pieces and. Once again, what we have here is conventional wisdom in foreign affairs, uh, much more than in other things, is often wildly incorrect. It's like every interpretation we had for 30 years about how Arab countries would react if Israel did this, that, or the other thing, how the street would behave, how this would, what would happen if we did X, Y, or Z in Iraq or in Kuwait or or you know that that there would be this kind of upright every if you talk to people who did this for a living and were like fluent arabic speakers and had done this for 30 years they had all kinds of settled ideas about what was going on in those countries and they didn't know the first thing about what actually happens when events on the ground alter people's perceptions time and time again and we have this going on here and i uh we were. I will say this: that at the beginning of the war, um, the whole point was this is necessary. We have to support Ukraine every way, but this is going to be a brutal, horrifying, terrible, and it is. It's not. Don't get me wrong. Like it's a terrible, destructive war. But um, that Ukraine could be in a position of forcing a Russian retreat or that Russia would be the party that would end up suing for peace. That wasn't on anybody's agenda. Still a long way off from anything resembling that. Well, we don't know that plenty of cards to play. I, you know, honestly, I think think there's also a perceptual, they defer to the the risks associated with mass mobilization before suing for some kind of a but let, let you know here's the interesting thing i then went, went and looked this up because of course some of this is always we have this perceptual problem of russia and the soviet union right so the soviet union russia is not the soviet union russia is the remnant the russian remnant of the soviet union it has a lot of nuclear weapons and it has oil and in on russian territory and all of that but um in population terms it isn't wildly larger than Ukraine. It's 140 million people uh, as opposed to 45 million. That's not, in other words, that's not like 11, it's not like, you know, 
Hungary, which was 11 million people in 1956 versus the entire Soviet bloc, not just the Soviet Union. Uh, Ukraine has its own breadbasket wealth of its own kind. It's not a poor, it's not a desperately poor country, and it's a well-trained country. And Russia may be a hollowed out shell. I mean, one of the things we seem to be learning here is that it's a hollowed out, is that there's a hollowed out shell aspect and quality to what Russia is, that Russia itself may be learning as it goes. Um, and we think of it, we still hear the echoes of the Soviet Union, the fact that Putin is an ex-KGB agent and all of that, but he doesn't have what the Soviet Union had. Only if he wants to use nukes does he have what the Soviet Union had. Um, and so I don't know. I just think it's we're, we're it's an it's an interesting inflection point because uh, this is yet another reminder that conventional wisdom and foreign affairs is something that we constantly forget is often wildly wrong for reasons having to do with clientitis and people believing whatever they're told in the language that you know when they take a trip somewhere they go for three days and they think they understand a country and the psychology and all that i, don't well, know. I, I was well, trying because... to think about this last night i'm sorry briefly i was trying to think of this last night what is the near the most recent example of what we're seeing in in this particular conflict two two well-trained well-equipped mechanized armies employing combined arms tactics on a field in a near peer competition iraq 91 what? No, because we not Iraq ninety one. No, oh, Iraq, Iraq ninety one. We 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 destroyed them in a hundred days. They were they had no they had nothing. Um, I don't know that there is a comparison because I mean, they're the, uh, all the all wars. War, uh, generally, not these aren't peer peer to peer no, competitions. And this same is thing. Competition. This is that because I mean these are all those were all asymmetric. We went in Iraq with 500,000 people in 1991. This was supposed to be an asymmetric conflict. It's clearly not. But that's my point. I think we only thought it was asymmetric because we had some weird fundamental misunderstanding of what Russia is. Russia was invading territory in which 44 million people live. They're not 10 times their size, 10 times their wealth, and 10 times their power, as it turns out. We just thought they were. And even more importantly, they seem to think that they were. And they weren't. So the question I wanted to go back and and Abe, please get in here is is why did we think that? Well, no, well, I was going to say <clears throat> when you were saying there's various reasons that that we we tend to always sort of get foreign policy wrong, or so or the popular ideas about foreign policy are are wrong, is because. Um, Industries are built out of theories uh, in foreign policy. Uh, the, the I think the most flagrant example is the is the peace process industry in Israel, right? Uh, not in not in Israel. I mean, partially, but but about Israel, um, it, a, a whole host of think tanks and lobbying groups pop up to promote. An, a certain idea, a model about how people will behave under certain circumstances, um, and and that that has a kind of momentum that that makes the products of those places turn into conventional wisdom. 
I mean, you know, 50 years ago, it was the the famous, the old China hands who uh, told us that, you know, Mao was a decolonizer and uh, we had to understand him in that context and work with him and everything like that. And then, you know, we discover pretty much over the course of the following decade as those John K. Fairbank and his disciples are at the summit of their powers in the late 60s and early 70s that Mao had killed 60 million people. And that the entire country had been uh, tormented and terrorized and that the next 40 years were going to be a story of getting away from everything, you know, of the, everything that Mao was and 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 trying to save the country from the depredations uh, that he had laid. And that was the that was the conventional wisdom. They were called the China hands. That's who they were. Nobody else knew anything about China. And their thing was. Of course, we can work with them. They're not really. They're Confucians. They're not really communists. Look, and we see some of it still in place now regarding Iran. I mean, certainly when Barack Obama was president, um, there were a bunch of pro-Iranian lobbying groups and 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 think tanky places um, asserting all these ideas about um, rehabilitating Tehran and how how there were moderates there and, and th- th- all of that was 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 what what the original jcpoa was built on uh, has to be said the trump years put a lot of dents in that um and and those voices um be, be got got a lot quieter but now of course as we know as we watch watch the biden administration struggling to get a new nuclear deal with iran some of those voices are back but it's funny because i think those voices were um quite hysterically peddling the idea two weeks ago uh, that the deal was totally imminent and a lot of this was coming from that kind of weird pro-iranian side um as a form of pressure uh both to uh depress the anti-jcpoa side and to stimulate the obama administration uh, the biden administration into into make going the final mile um with iran and the clear shift in the wisdom over the last three or four days is that if the deal had been imminent, which I never believed it was, despite what I was hearing from people who had been speaking to Israeli officials and stuff like that, um, it is no longer imminent. Now, I'm not entirely clear why it's no longer imminent. I think politically it would be very stupid for Biden at this moment to announce a concordance with Iran like that. That would actually, if you want to talk about naked, raw political calculation inside the United States as they're kind of on this, what if you want to consider it a role, Democrats, they don't need a foreign policy controversy in which it appears that the president is playing footsie with the people who are, you know, who like tried to kill, who have active plots to kill this, the national security advisor and the secretary of state and others. It's not good for them, but I don't know. By the way, um, has anybody noticed that we know absolutely nothing about uh, Salman Rushdie's condition? Um, it's been like three weeks, four weeks, and we heard he was sitting uh, the day after we heard some stuff, and now there has been almost nothing. I'm a little, I'm a little alarmed. Uh, I don't think that's a good sign. Um, and that was a really, really savage attack. I mean. If you read about it. Uh, so th- there's a good way to end uh, for the week. I hope you get to hear this 
I hope it goes up on iTunes. Uh, <laughs> and uh, if if it does, please don't email us and ask us where the Thursday show is or the two because I don't know. I, I don't know where it is. I can't. I can't help you find it. For Abe, Christina, Noam, John Podhortz, keep the candle burning.